the old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words roughly paraphrased from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast, uh, sponsored by The Nation magazine and available wherever you can listen to podcasts. Um, I want to um, return to Andor, uh, uh, the latest iteration of Star Wars that has been running on Disney. We talked about it before, but now um, the first season is over and uh, it's a complete narrative arc. And uh, any worries that one might have that this very good show was not going to be able to like conclude satisfactorily are over. And um, it's become a kind of phenomenon. And once, uh, you know, like I think, as I mentioned before, a lot of people have become disillusioned with Star Wars, that it's become a kind of all too familiar franchise. And um, one noticed, you know, when Andor started running, that um, this meme came up on Twitter where people were sort of saying, Andor is actually good. And that's a, a sort of like a grassroots feeling of people like, oh, this is Star Wars, but it's actually quite good. And that's been accumulating and building. And there's sort of more and more enthusiasm. And we're like at the stage now where people are saying like, Andor is actually great. Um, and I think the, uh, the the person who has made the best sort of argument for the greatness of Andor, I think, is um, our old friend uh, David Cleon, um, an editor at Jewish Currents and uh, a writer whose work appears in many publications, including The Nation. Uh, and he wrote a piece in The New Re Republic, um, uh, uh, review of the first season of Andor. And he makes a, a very compelling case as to why both it's different from old Star Wars, but also I think I think more importantly, like this is like leaving Star Wars out of the equation. This is actually a top-notch TV show. He compares it to The Wire, which I think for many people is the gold standard. Um, and you know, like if you told me a year ago that there was going to be a Star Wars show that people um, of critical discernment would compare it to The Wire. I don't think I would have believed you, uh, but I think it's a compelling comparison. So maybe we can uh, start there, uh, David. Thanks for having me, as always, um, and uh, thanks for uh, uh, granting that I have critical discernment. It's always nice to hear that. But um, I, uh, I, I actually would make the comparison to the wire. I mean, my exact line in the in the review is that it can be reasonably mentioned in the same breath as the wire, and I'm I'm actually going to take that further here because in the review, I really just wanted to say this is an actually great show. It's it it's not just like a good show by Star Wars standards. If anyone, for instance, uh, in the last couple of years watched The Mandalorian, which which was, um, D Disney's now done a couple uh, serialized Star Wars stories. And of them, I think prior to Andor, I think most people would agree The Mandalorian was the best. And it's good. It's good TV. It's a lot of fun. Um, you know, yeah, I, no, but I think The Mandalorian is very interesting as a point of comparison, because I think it's a good Star Wars TV show in the sort of best vein of the original George Lucas Star Wars, absolutely. Of a sort of space opera that borrows from spaghetti westerns and uh, samurai movies, and uh, it has a kind of lean, effective narrative. Uh, and I think you know, like a lot of people compared it to the um, famous uh, Japanese manga Lone Wolf and Cub, and it sort of you know it, it belongs in that sort of genre. Uh, yeah, and so it was good. But and, and speaking was... and speaking of the cub, it also gave us the um, instantly memorable character of Grogu, aka Baby Yoda, who yeah. as a as a new dad had, had. I mean, honestly, I think 
Grogu is one of the more compelling uh, uh, portraits of kind of new fatherhood in a while. So, um, yeah, I yeah, really... no, 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 The Mandalorian is a, it's a very uh, it's a good show. It's, it's a, a good, good show, show, but I bring it up but, mainly to establish. But nobody, that. But nobody has compared the Mandalorian to the Wire. No. Uh, whereas, whereas no. I, I, the I, Mandalorian, I, the Mandalorian came out, and it was like, oh, you can still tell good stories in the Star Wars sandbox that's that's fun that's you know nice this this is an enjoyable watch um and or absolutely no one i think was prepared for storytelling at a level that reasonably compares to all of the not you know i mentioned the wire but it could be um you know any any number of the best dramas of our time mad men or breaking bad as sopranos or whatever uh you know that level of storytelling and acting and 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 uh sort of creative vision um which is wild which is not just like good by star wars standards star wars has never had that you know the the original trilogy i i get into this but was not never I, it the first two movies are great art i think but they're they're not attempting to be this kind of art uh this is the first filmed star wars there've probably been some books in the decanonized expanded universe that arguably could hold up to this standard but this is as I say in my piece, the first Star Wars for adults and the wire comparison, I would actually make on two levels. Um, one is the substance of the show itself, which as with the wire, it kind of starts off focused on like, uh, you know, one little backwater corner of society. And then it kind of pulls back further and further. It does this faster than the wire does. Um, but it it pulls back to be a, a sort of sweeping sociological portrait of an entire society from top to bottom and a broken system and you meet the politicians and you you meet the cops essentially and you you meet um the criminals and and you you meet the laborers and you sort of see how their lives all interact and you see how the system is broken from top to bottom i mean it's it's a it's a truly sociological novel really in the way that the wire was so so it, it it stands comparison on that level and also like the wire it has some you know great soliloquies and some great performances i mean uh but and some like instantly memorable lines um but the other reason it's like the wire is more meta it's in our world um the wire was never a hit for hbo uh you know the sopranos was a hit mad men was a hit breaking bad was a hit the wire was not a hit the Wire always had, you know, low viewership. Uh, it was never intended to be and never was a money-making show. And it took, it, it it had a sort of like loyal base of fans. And in the case of The Wire, you know, a lot has changed in um, the sort of uh, critical and, and meta environment in which we consume TV shows in part because of The Wire. Um, but as I recall, it was during the third season that a handful of prominent critics and writers started saying, we've been watching this show quietly for, you know, two, three seasons now. This is the best show ever made. Um, and enough pieces in like prestige magazines and, you know, Slate and places like that started saying, this is the best show ever made. This is phenomenal. This is a new kind of storytelling that it, you know, every critic, but also every like smart writer of any kind, every journalist sort of had to get around to watching The Wire eventually. And the more of them did, and the more of them said, not least on Twitter, but elsewhere too, you know, this is this is the best show ever made. Um, you know, the more it became just accepted canonically that this was this was something special. 
Um, and HBO, I'm sure ultimately they're glad they they invested in The Wire because while it may not have been a, a money-making show when it was on, it was on from 2003 to 2008, um, now if you were trying to get someone to buy HBO Max and you were like, here are just some of the things that you'll get, you know, one thing you'd get is five seasons of The Wire. I mean, it's there. It's a sort of, I don't know how much they consciously intended this, but in hindsight, it's like they made a bid for critical prestige, which that they can then use to sell, you know, more mass appeal shows. Um, and Disney, which has owned Star Wars for the past decade, I think, um, and, you know, made a ton of money on that investment, uh, it was a big investment. Um, but, you know, with highly uneven product, to say the least, um, <laughs> this is this is probably one of the least popular filmed Star Wars, uh, or at least a month ago, it probably was. Um, but the but the critical and sort of Twitter and 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 kind of discerning fan build up. And I'm not going to give myself personal credit for this. I I I came, you know, midway through the bandwagon, and it was going to come regardless. I think, but like, um, uh, you know, yeah, lots of people I know or respect or read, we're we're all pulling for this show because I think we want to see more shows like this, and not just from Star Wars, but in general. Yeah, no, no, I think that's a uh, uh, sort of a good um, summary of like why this is sort of similar to The Wire. And before we go further, because we're going to start to go into like sort of plot issues and story issues. So I want to like give uh, listeners fair warning. Um, you know, this is a podcast for grownups. So we're, we're, we're assuming you're not worried about spoilers. Uh, I hope people listening have seen uh, uh, Andor. Um, but uh, in any case, we're going to like, you know, assume uh, familiarity with it and not not worry about like giving stuff away. Um, and and but, likewise with the movie Rogue One, which yes. um, which which is good not as good as andor but good and makes andor possible but crucially for our purposes the fate of the main character cassie and andor um is portrayed in rogue one and we're going to assume you know how things work out for him that's right that's right yeah um the other thing i i want to just uh maybe round out the wire discussion because i think that some of the aspects that make it like the wire are also on the level of um, uh, qualities in the show, one of which is a kind of sort of um, novelistic storytelling. That is a storytelling that is not, um, you know, one and done or or uh, um, sort of blatant television movie storytelling where things are laid out to you, but where there is like a story unfolds and you're supposed to pay attention and there's a kind of arc of the characters. So the whole like 12 episodes um, and within the 12 episodes, they sort of broken up into three um, uh, 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 show arcs. Uh, each and uh, it feels like a very um, architecturally well-designed show like, like there, the, there's a lot of stuff that's like early in the show that plays itself out later and they, a lot of the characters um, not just the main character but a lot of the minor characters um, including even the the little droid uh, they have arcs and they have like yeah. sort of stories oh um, yeah very minor characters actually this was a big thing on the wire too there are characters who are kind of in the background, they get a line here or there, no one even remembers their name. But if you, I've watched The Wire four times, although not recently. Um, if you if you watch The Wire like a second or third time, you start to catch 
that there's there are characters who will make like one quick appearance in one season and then one quick appearance in the next season and then one quick appearance in the season after that and you never even like consciously registered this before but those appearances tell a complete and very powerful story and andor it's only had one season so far but there are characters whose names we don't even know especially on uh Ferex, the the sort of blue collar world that we're introduced to early um who have that kind of background yet fully formed arc it's it's really careful like nothing is accidental on this show that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I was, and I think that uh, that that makes for like a kind of very satisfying viewing, and and I would suggest reviewing. I, I feel like this is a show people are going to be visit revisiting as you have with the wire uh, over and over again. Um, the uh, other aspect with the wire uh, that's sort of comparable to the wire is the uh, moral ambiguity or the the sense of you know like this is obviously a, a system where there are bad guys a kind of you know um in, in the wire the sort of a capitalist system uh here uh even going a bit further a sort of fascistic system but within that there's like all sorts of uh as you mentioned in your new republic P, uh, review you know moral ambiguities of like how do people react to fascism what are the things that make it attractive for some people to like, you know, want that sort of order that fascism pro promises, and what are the ways in which people um, resist fascism, or initially like kind of like try to make peace with it, or try to like flee it, but then realize they have to fight it. There's a lot of like, um, um, it, it's a story about a, a social system, and then how people navigate through that, and the spectrum. Um, you know, runs from uh, people who are like, I think some of the best depicted fascists we've seen in American TV, certainly. Like, like people, you really understand the sort of fascist mindset. Um, and even like, I would kind of, uh, you know, throw this out there. Um, some of the insights of Adorno and the Frankfurt School of how the family, uh, authoritarian family is the kind of bedrock of fascism. And that there, there's one character in particular, kind of a lowly sniveling figure, but uh, we get um, controversially in <laughs> scenes of his uh, home life and his his mother uh and but i think that those are those are very important for i want to i want to briefly address and dismiss the controversy <laughs> i think you're alluding to because it's it's the kind of stupid controversy that the internet is just so great at producing this was okay. in the lawn which you know apparently still exists and and apparently still publishes articles yeah. uh, so let, let, let me say that this is the sort of thing um uh, the take that you see it like posted on twitter and you think like did noah berlatsky write this and it was, <laughs> it was not noah berlatsky it was not it was noah berlatsky in fact it was in the fact same same uh same territory yeah, but this, I mean, I think Salon is down, you know, most of us in, in our, you know, line of work have, have heard of or interacted with Noah Berlatsky at some point. This is, um this is not Noah Berlatsky. This is a, a, a completely random person, um, which I guess is who Salon publishes now. But their take was that the character who I'd love to talk about a lot, uh, Cyril Karn, um, his, uh, his his mother uh is this kind of tyrannical nag is how i describe her in in my review um and uh th this person in salon wrote the take that it's anti-semitic that she's the classic jewish mother now i want to say i'm sure i and every other jew or simply culturally aware figure who watched this it probably did cross our mind oh he has a jewish mom 
Um, Abe Riesman, my friend and, and a board member at Jewish Currents, um, uh, you know, did some tweets to the effect that, you know, he kind of stands her as a, as a Jewish mom, which I, I thought was uh, funny. But, um, but the actress is Greek, and I actually think she's what what's being identified as Jewish mom here is not quite correct. She's not there's nothing Jewish about this. She's she's an ethnic lower middle class striver mom. She could just as easily be Livia Soprano. Um, she could just as easily be, you know, in my big fat Greek wedding or or whatever. I mean, she's um yeah yeah. She, or, th or this is can, yeah. I mean, I'll speak up. She, she could be Indian, be an Indian mom. I mean, they, the the, the character mom. type is uh, a very familiar one, um, which, which in North America gets the cast as the Jewish mom because of the you know prominent role that uh, Jewish comedians going back to vaudeville have played. Well, and because of, because of, you know, Philip Roth and stuff. But like, no, it's, she's not a Jewish mom. She's an ethnic. And, uh, I mentioned, I mentioned the, uh, the actress yeah. is um, Catherine Hunter, uh, who's um, a really terrific um, actor, uh, which I don't think is quite as famous as she deserves to be because she mainly does stage, but she was also the witches in uh, Joel Cohen's uh, Macbeth and was like amazing as the witches. Oh, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I, she, I should say, by the way, that the cast, I mean, Diego Luna, who plays um, uh, Andor is is familiar and Stellan Skarsgård, who, who is incredible as a, a character called Luthen we'll talk about uh, is familiar, but actually much of the cast is not that familiar and it's like uniformly great. Uh, and, and I'd never heard of the guy, was it Kyle Stoller or something who plays Karn, yeah. but I mean, he's very good. Yeah. He's very good. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Good. yeah. So, so, so we can, we can dismiss the sort of, you know, salon bad take. This yeah. Is, uh, the, the, uh, to be clear, this is not an anti-Semitic show in any yeah. way. Shape, or form. Yeah. Although I mean, I mean, the one aspect I want to reiterate though was in locating the sort of uh, fascism within the family and within the sort of you know um, the way in which uh, uh, family pressures make people kind of both sniveling and obedient and desirous of uh, authority and order. Um, you know, that is the part of the classic sort of Frankfurt School, you know, um, Adorno uh, analysis. And uh, uh, I thought it was very striking. And, and one of the many ways in which the show is very clever is that there's a sort of parallel narratives developed between um, Cyril Karn, the aspiring fascist, and Casey and Andor, uh, played by Diego Luna, the aspiring uh, re rebel who merely starts off as a petty thief. And we see the process whereby he becomes a revolutionary. Um, whereas Kyle uh, Soller starts off as merely a sort of, you know, low level thuggish security uh, personnel. A lot of people on Twitter have been referring to him as a mall cop, which isn't. Oh quite right but it is a neat idea and 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 i uh, right right from the beginning you can tell something is really different about this show because uh, in the first episode i mean a lot of people including me you know pointed out right away there's no force there's no lightsabers there's no jedi whatever which is actually true through the whole show but in the first episode you're not even seeing rebels and imperials like it's not even like rogue one which which is the movie that made all this possible you know is is and and which um not only introduces andor but you know is sort of focused on regular people who don't for the most part use the force um and and who are you know soldiers in a war uh and 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 that kind of paves the way for this that kind of like 
social realism by Star Wars standards, but um, but in but but it's still very much about rebels and empires. So we're situated at that level from the beginning when we see Rogue One. This show in the first episode, we don't even we're not meeting rebels. At least anyone we know is a rebel, and we're not seeing Imperial stormtroopers. We're seeing this petty thief on this blue collar world, and the bad guys, the administration. Are, are a private corporation that's basically being contracted out by the empire to do, you know, mining in the outer worlds. And the, the guys who do security for it wear these kind of, you know, uniforms that, I mean, they basically wear these lowly uniforms, but, but an instant character revealing detail we get about um, Karn in the first episode is that his superior kind of points out and, and, kind of dismissively that Karn has had his uniform specially tailored so that it, although it's blue and it has different insignias and stuff, it it kind of evokes the uniform of like an Imperial Admiral, like we've seen in the original trilogy. And right away, you know, and everyone else is just kind of a schlub doing a, a you know, a busy work job. And Karn clearly sees himself as, as someone important, someone of destiny, someone who's going to like, do the best he can in this job that's stupid and that no one else takes seriously. Uh, not only do the people they're policing not take them seriously, but you know, even his boss and and his colleagues, none of them think being a corporate security officer is important. Karn does. It's only a few episodes later when we meet his mom that we understand why he has this, you know, seething need to to project authority to to you know, assert authority to, um, to be part of a system that matters, um, you know, but, but, but right away we meet him and we understand that this guy, you know, thinks of himself as, as, a, a you know, worthy of being a military officer in this great fascist empire, um, and, and is sort of bringing that to his, his dead end job. And, you know, that that's the villain from the beginning is already, I mean, I will say, I think Diego Luna is great in the show, and I think Andor is a good character and a good sort of almost every man center for the show. But he is the least interesting of the major characters on this show. And it's really Karn who right away told me this show is doing something different. Um, and 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 then as we meet several other major characters, um, I think... I think the show is going to be remembered more for Karn, for Luthen, for Mon Mothma, and for um, Miro, the the intelligence officer, uh, each of whom is just uh, a, a completely compelling, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, Stringer Bell or, 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 you know, Omar or whoever, like, it's like, as you watch The Wire, you gradually realize who's really carrying the show. And it's not, it's not really Jimmy McNulty. Yeah, no, I I I I, I think that's uh, right in terms of like the the weight of the characters. I, there's something very generic about Cassian Andor, uh, but perhaps intentionally. Um, I do want to say that I do think that the show does try to draw parallels between Cassian and Cyril Karn. Uh, in both cases, we're shown the mom. They're both kind of like raised by moms, and I think the difference between their family relationships, um, uh, and home life are kind of inform um, that and also their differences in their relationship with people around them, like the way in which 
Cassian, even as a sort of petty thief, is involved in a social world where people kind of have to look out for each other. And um, uh, is alienated and atomized. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, including uh, including with the very stark visual metaphor at this midpoint of the show where he's he's uh, you know become a kind of cubicle farm worker, and you see you know cubicle farms by way of the imperial aesthetic. Uh, and it's, you know, just just a, an incredible shot or series of shots, um, of, and, uh, of, you know, thousands of people working in these these little um, boxes based what are they like, like hexagonal or something boxes, uh, you know, none of them engaged with each other, all of them just staring at spreadsheets. I mean, it's it's you know, we've seen versions of that across the past century, but it's it's really well done. That's right. That's right. And in fact, I think, I mean, it's a very uh, interesting and uh, thing that I think that those scenes and some of the other sort of scenes of the alienated prison world uh, are an allusion to uh, an earlier work of George Lucas before he did Star Wars, THX. Um, eleven thirty-eight. Uh, and so I was, I thought it was charming that they they acknowledged Lucas's uh, uh uh earlier attempts to do like very serious science fiction. Um, and I, actually, I mean, uh, on that note, I will mention like there are a lot of striking sort of visual allusions to other works of art. Um, uh, and, and thematic allusions like one one could mention. Um, as well, that they're sort of evokes the ambiance a little bit of Blade Runner in that sort of in the world of Ferex. It's a kind of you know uh, very rainy um, uh, urban decayed world. Um, there's allusions to uh, the Battle of Algiers, especially yes. the sort of like the big scene of rebellion at the end. Uh, and and, the, and that, uh, there's a staircase on Ferex that they they film a few sequences on that I I think is a very like like there's a very similar shot within the Caspa of in in Battle of Algiers. I mean, it it seems yeah. clearly deliberate. Yeah, no, very much so. And I think that in general, some of the characters uh, seem to evoke the world of uh, Jean Le Carre and the sort of you know the moral ambiguity of you know the um, the world of espionage. Um, <laughs> and I I think and that and that in itself brings us to like someone we haven't mentioned yet, but I think deserves a lot of the credit for the show, who seems to be the real mastermind, which is like uh, Tony uh, Gilroy, the um, yes. screenwriter and director. Um, and he's someone who people might um, remember. I mean, I think he's most famous for Michael Clayton, uh, you know, like a very good George Clooney movie, which has like- Oh, a, I was gonna say he's most famous for the Bourne movie. Well, well, also the Bourne movie. But I mean, I, I do think like in terms of, like the Bourne movies are kind of like the big franchise that he, you know, he's kind of a, uh, that he's very, very uh, wrote the, the script for. But, but Michael Clayton seemed like prior to Andor, his most sort of, you know, personal project with his stamp on it. And is like an excellent, like kind of like legal thriller with a lot of moral ambiguity. Uh, and I, I think that Gilroy, like if one reads interviews of him, you know, he seems to he describes himself as history nerd, read a lot of like his um, uh, books on history of revolutions. Uh, I would bet money that he listens to uh, Mike Duncan's uh, Revolutions podcast. Yeah. So speaking, so speaking of which, I I, I mentioned Mike in uh, my piece. I've, I'm I'm friends with Mike at this point. Full disclosure, and we've we've hung out a couple times. But he um he is an acknowledged fan of the show, and Mike Mike Duncan is is in wrap up mode for his uh, long running excellent podcast Revolutions. 
Hopkins, which I can't recommend enough and which I was a fan of before I got to know him. Um, and uh, <clears throat> that that show basically takes you through 10 historical revolutions uh, and and um, and and just kind of synthesizes everything that's been written about each of them and 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 the sort of wrap up phase the appendixes that he's going through right now are are him sort of doing cross comparisons of the revolutions he studied and trying to draw some general lessons for like the patterns that come up again and again in how revolutions develop um and and fall apart and it's just to say the guy knows what he's talking about when it comes to revolutions political upheaval old regimes new regimes all of it um and, and he's also, we should, since we're plugging him, author of a recent biography of Lafayette, which is yes. a book about uh, the American and French revolutions. Yes, a character who, well, really of two different French revolutions, a guy yes. who unites three of the 10 revolutions he's covered. Um, and uh, yeah, that's called A Hero of Two Worlds, and you can find it in bookstores, but uh, it's very good. But, um, but he, uh, this is just to say, Mike Duncan... Personally, I can I can say finds Andor to be a totally compelling work about what revolutions are really like and how they really work. Um, yeah, which is yeah. remarkable. Which is a very high praise. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, he's someone, uh, yeah, uh, uh, who's done a lot of serious thinking about revolutions. Uh, and, and in fact, I mean, I think that to go to mention Gilroy and his use of history again, I think one thing he mentions that I find fascinating is that he had read a, a biography of um, Stalin, uh, I believe by Simon uh, Montefiore, uh, mm-hmm. about young Stalin. And uh, there's a you know, very famous case where you know, Stalin was a, um, under the czars, was kind of like a criminal and robbed a bank. And then and the money was used to finance the revolution. And that is um, a kind of plot point in Andor, like, like the, yeah. the way in which like, criminal activities can, uh, are used to finance revolutions. Yes, in I mean one 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 thing that's so compelling about Andor I think is that the precise moment they've chosen to center the show, which they they put it five years before the original Star Wars or A New Hope. Um, I mean, if the show weren't called Andor, if it weren't named for for this one character, um, who who we'd only met once before in in Rogue One. And and although I saw and liked Rogue One when it was in theaters, I had completely forgot that there was a character named Andor in it, um, which he's, he's not that compellingly drawn in Rogue One. Uh, so if it weren't called Andor, it would probably be called like the Rise of the Rebellion or something, which might be a overly didactic term. But really, the moment they've chosen is the moment when scattered insurgencies and... Um, and and sort of dissatisfaction with the empire that we you know see rise in the awful prequel trilogy and see defeated in the original trilogy scattered discontent with it is is kind of coming together in what what is going to be the rebel alliance that we see fighting uh in in those three movies but the the rebel alliance doesn't really exist yet um and one of the core insights politically of the show is that um that well there's there's a character who's writing um a manifesto actually that seems influenced by like fanon and and all kinds of you know anti-colonialist and revolutionary writers um of the 20th century and and he uh and and in the last episode we we get some sort of uh 
quotes from his manifesto as we see uh, in Insurgency. Uh, Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Uh, unfold on Ferrix. Uh, and the, um, the, the, the one of the core insights of it is that, you know, a system of totalitarian order is a brittle one and there will always be people resisting it in all kinds of ways all over the place and every little spark of insurgency you know is kind of revealing the weaknesses of the system even if it fails even if it's not coordinated with anyone else um and uh you know the this is basically the story of how such things come together how how and and with Cassian I mean we've got a guy who hates the empire and is a petty criminal and will you know is willing to kill uh and to break laws um but has no interest in in a sort of like organized political project that might you know require him to sacrifice his life or anything like that and he's willing to take risks but he's um you know he's not willing to to sign up for this bigger project because he thinks it's futile um and then meanwhile in Luthen we have a guy who sees a lot of potential in Andor um who gives you know the best speech of the show the best speech any show has had in a long time uh, about how he's uh what does he say he's 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 made his mind a sunless space that that whole speech mm -hmm. um you know the point of which is basically that uh that that he is devoting his entire life and any chance he might ever have of happiness uh, to someday tearing this empire down, likely after he's dead. We don't know if he's gonna uh, survive through the second season of the show, but I would I would bet against. Um, and um, and but Luthen, I mean, the show doesn't make anything simple. Is willing to do some very morally dubious things uh, to advance the the rebellion and the fall of the empire, and the show makes you sit with that. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think that the, um, um, uh, the moral ambiguity, um, comes from the fact that, like, you know, like, there's an actual cost. Uh, it's not a pure good versus evil thing. Um, um, and I'll actually quote from that, like, because he was asked by an, another character, you know, like, what, what, what is he sacrificing? Uh, Luthen is sacrificing, and he says, uh, calm, kindness, kinship, love. I've given up all chances of inner peace. I've made my mind a sunless space. I share my dreams with ghosts. Um, 
so it's a very powerful speech and I would encourage people to listen to it. I can't do it the justice that uh, uh, Skyscard obviously did to it. Uh, you, you, you gave me chills there, Jay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, uh, and, and, and again, like it is, um, 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 so, 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 you know, like one sees within the, the group of rebels, um, I mean, the, sh the show shows that there's widespread rebellion always all the time because people don't like these authoritarian systems, uh, but that often it comes like, you know, like with small acts of defiance. And, and you know, we're taping this at a time where like things are still smoldering in China and Iran. But one thinks of, you know, like in a place like Iran, even before the current things, like, you know, like um, not wearing a hijab when you can get away with it was a kind of, you know, small yeah. act of rebellion that was often done. Uh, but then how- Well, like, well you know, that Havel, right? Havel wrote about all the like little ways you can um, not conform to to the system you know, the greengrocer who chooses to put up his party sign or doesn't, uh, you know, that that's in the 20th century communist, you know, Soviet satellite regime context in Czechoslovakia. But um, but actually, a lot of it also made me think about slavery in the American context, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, for every John Brown uh, or Nat Turner, uh, you know, what historians have kind of gradually um you know, as as sort of social history came to the fore in the last half century, what historians have have gradually asserted is, you know, slavery was never just a system where the slaves were were docile and accepted their station until, you know, the Northern Army and heroic white abolitionists freed them. Uh, you know, this was a system that people were constantly resisting, and not just with you know, the, the bloody Nat Turner rebellion, which of course was suppressed, but does in a way point forward toward John Brown, which, and, and you know, which points in turn to the Civil War. I mean, uh, I mean, all of those little failed rebellions culminate in uh, the, the sectional crisis and the South seceding and the war that does end slavery. So they all actually did kind of heighten the contradictions and ultimately got got people somewhere. But historians have also noticed all the little ways, you know, work slowdowns or whatever, that minor acts of sabotage, the Underground Railroad, all the little ways that enslaved people in their way would resist because you, you, you know, a system of total power over people and, and, and slavery properly understood was a system of totalitarianism against um, every, you know, person of African descent in, in, in the South and really ultimately in the North. Um, because of the Fugitive Slave Act and so on. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of those dynamics are actually captured very well on this show, not least in the in the astonishing prison break sequence that makes up maybe the the third quarter of the show, uh, where where we see uh in the speech that Andy Circus as the kind of camp capo gives, telling all the the prisoners to rise up and leave. It's made clear and sort of implied in in the in the subsequent episode when Cassian has escaped. Most of these guys aren't going to make it, right? Like this is an, uh, an incredible act of resistance. All these all these prisoners rising up and escaping. Um, most of them probably drown, mm -hmm. uh, you know. But but some of them are going to get free. And 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 it's we don't know what happens to Circus's character, but in all likelihood he dies since he can't. Uh, well, I mean, it's like sort of mentioned that he can't swim. So <laughs> yeah, well, so unless yeah, so, we yeah. we should assume he died. 
And that was actually, yeah. I mean, since we uh, were ticking off the great performances, uh, Andy Serkis is one of the great performances. Um, yeah. And you but, know, but but he makes clear he would rather die, and he essentially invites everyone in in this prison, thousands of men. Um, you know, he basically says that inspires them by saying like we should all rather die than accept another minute of of this uh enslavement i mean they are slave laborers well yeah no exactly exactly yeah although i mean the whole prison sequence is very interesting because um it shows the two sides of this because there's a way in which uh everyone including andor is initially going along with it because they think like if i'm a good prisoner uh you know i'll serve my time and be released and the um uh, I mean, and there's a kind of compliance that comes uh, from most people to the, to the system. And it's only when they realize that, like, well, actually, they're never going to get out of here. There's only one way out. Uh, it was the big catchphrase of that episode uh, that they're kind of led to rebellion. But we, we see the sort of slow dawning of awareness of what the system is, what it's doing, and like, and and um, uh, how uh, being the most compliant slave is not going to get you anywhere. Uh, so, so it's a very, I mean, that, that is among the most powerful uh, sequences um, in the show. Uh, I, so. I think we've covered real, really well the sort of rebel side. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of the fascist um, uh, because, and we have mentioned obviously uh, Cyril Karn, uh, but um, there's also um, uh, uh, Deidre Miro is the, yes. uh, kind of the security official. Um, and the actress, uh, uh, Genevieve, O'Reilly. No, no, no. That's who plays Mon Mothma. Oh, so, 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 Denise, sorry, Denise uh, yeah, Go. Denise Go or something, whatever. Yeah, yeah, Denise Go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, Denise Go, um, made a very interesting sort of comment, um, I think, at, at a film festival in Europe where she says, well, you know, like initially you are, um, I think you're supposed to sympathize with her because she's a woman in a man's world. Uh, but a the actual point is she's a fascist in a fascist world. Uh, yeah. And I thought that was a very, uh, the point the actor made is very compelling. And um, it actually like sort of, you know, brings to mind some recent, um, you know, political stuff uh, with like, you know, in Italy, uh, there was a, you know, basically a neo-fascist is, you know, <laughs> elected to power. And there were some people say, well, you know, at least she's a woman. And I have Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton <laughs> did, did say something that could be read that way. And it was yeah, just that, well, we have to, we have yeah. to like, acknowledge that it's positive that a woman was elected, you know, unfortunately. Do we, do we though? Do we in this case have to acknowledge? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, honestly, yeah. Yeah. honestly, I... I want to believe, I mean, there are a lot of serious parallels we can draw, but I want to believe that Tony Gilroy or whoever came up with that character has seen the um, famous probably 2016 election era tweet um, from uh, uh, an anonymous kind of left poster named, Ma you know, who calls himself Maple Cocaine uh, that, that comes up all the time uh, where like, you know, where where liberal feminism is cast as higher, more female prison guards. Yeah. And that's that's what we've got here. We've got we've got a girl boss, as as it were, who is actually um not only fighting against male condescension and adversity, which is real, which the show the show is very clear as it introduces her that, you know, she's a woman surrounded by men and the men are all kind of lazier, take their job less seriously. 
um, you know, are, are more just kind of uh, go along to get along, you know, intelligence analysts. And she is really smart, really competent, really determined um, and shows them up. And there's a wonderful scene where all these intelligence uh, chiefs meet and she's the only woman in the room uh, and she's not in charge. Um, and she basically gets into a fight with this kind of jealous, undermining male colleague. And then the, the the male boss in the scene takes her side because she's right. And everything we've seen about her so far in a, in a vacuum following her is essentially one of the show's multiple protagonists. Everything about this scene, any any audience member watching it and just kind of going with the dramatic cues um, as opposed to the bigger picture would be very satisfied with this scene because she wins and, and it doesn't initially look like she's going to win. She wins because she's right. She wins because she's smart. We're all trained at this point, I think, to to, to see a woman, you know, who who succeeds against a condescending male colleague as a victory. And we do. But if you actually think about it, her victory is not just like, oh, the bad guys are about to get one up on the good guys, but like fascism has just advanced in its war against insurgency. And as we see a few episodes later, she is a sadistic torturer. She's she is the banality of evil personified. Um and anyone who was rooting for her or or you know, uh, uh, standing her as a girl boss or whatever is forced to confront that. Um, now, the show does also have, and we can get to her in a sec, but some extremely positive and compelling female characters. Um, it's not by any means a misogynistic show, but it, far from it. But But I think it is showing how, you know, being yeah. being yeah. a competent woman who 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 succeeds in her prestigious career and shows up men is not inherently virtuous and in fact can be used for great evil yeah no and I, which i think is actually like a really um good uh, uh point to make because as i mentioned like in the real world you know like um uh there are you know fascist women and in fact i think the sort of you know the hard right the authoritarian right is becoming increasingly good at recruiting uh, and not just recruiting, but putting at the forefront as the more uh, benevolent face of what they stand for, uh, both women and people of color. I mean, that, that's just yeah. like a kind of reality. Right. And I, I think I think in some ways... Um, but, but you know who Mira most resembles? She doesn't resemble one of these clownish fascist right-wing women like Marjorie Taylor Greene or <laughs> Sarah Palin or whoever. Who she really resembles is, is Gina Haspel. Um, yes, yes, she, yes, yes. She's, she's a CIA torturer. She's a competent bureaucratic you know, almost if if political parties were an issue in the empire, I would say an almost nonpartisan figure. You yeah. know, she's not really an ideologue. Like her her real goal is to climb the bureaucratic career ladder to 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 have professional success, to just be really good at her job. Her job is evil. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She might be like privately never Palpatine, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that may be going a bit too far. But yes, I think that is kind of my point. Like yeah. she's not she's not here to serve, you know, whatever the Empire's big ideological idea is. She's not. A, and she's yeah. certainly not a, a Sith Lord. Yeah, yeah. But, but the, yeah. Well, exactly. But, but there's her bureaucratic evil. And and then the way in which, yeah, I mean, not just, as I mentioned, fascist parties and right wing, hard right wing parties are 
increasingly, you know, discovering their own uses of diversity, uh, but also the national security states are. Uh, yeah. And, you know, like it does seem like a bit similar to the kind of like CIA commercials one sees of, you know, uh, uh, I'm bisexual and I'm CIA. One of the many obvious allegories I think the show is drawing is a war on terror allegory, right? Because yes. Because the rebels kind of are terrorists. I mean, they're bank robbers. They also take, you know, they take an innocent child hostage to, to, uh, you know, in front of his his parents, and because his father is, you know, running this this uh, imperial base, and this is how they manipulate him. I mean, that's a hard thing to watch, and they do it, and they and they spend the show spends a a few minutes earlier, uh, you know, acquainting us with that family, which is a not an admirable, but a very human family, uh, just, you know, just kind of trying to get through life. And they do that to raise the emotional stakes of taking a child hostage, because that's the kind of thing that that a violent insurgency against the established order actually does. And, um, and, and the, uh, so they've, they've cast the rebels as terrorists. And when they get away with their Aldani raid about halfway through the show, uh, the empire basically passes a version of the Patriot Act that just empowers the security forces to do all kinds of terrible things with Mon Mothma, the kind of like lonely liberal Senator, uh, who's, who's speaking out against it and no one cares. Um, and, uh, you know, the, and then there's this this crackdown on on civil liberties such as they existed, and and you know this this prison camp and everything. It's all a response to uh, essentially increased terrorist activity and and this torture that that uh, Miro inflicts. So all of that is really following the beats of you know Zero Dark Thirty as much as anything else, except with a more critical eye than I think that movie had. Yeah, no, I I I, I think I think that's right. I would I. To draw the parallels out, I also think that the uh, insurgency or the rebellion that breaks out in Ferex uh, uh, calls to mind not just um, the Battle of Algiers, uh, but also historically uh, uh, Fallujah. Like it is a kind of uh, actually two insurgent two breakouts of rebellion in the sort of beginning of the show and at the end. Um, in both cases, uh, and particularly the one at the beginning calls to mind the sort of Fallujah type situations where you have private security contractors who kind of like are throwing their weight around over a restive population in a way that they shouldn't. And it leads to the kind of disaster. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, it, and there's allusions to the Palestinians too un, under occupation. And, and Gilroy has, um, has actually made clear in an interview that Palestine is among the, the, the things on his mind as he wrote this. Yeah, no, no, I know absolutely, and I think um, I mean it is sort of uh, interesting. Not just uh, I mean, one could do a whole other episode on this, but I do feel like the war and terror haunts a lot of popular culture, uh, and uh, in a lot of popular culture, it's come to a conclusion that I don't think political culture necessarily uh, has or will ever come to be able to say this of how the United States was the bad guys <laughs> in the story, uh, uh, and. The, so I, I think we've covered like a fair bit of ground. Uh, is there anything else you want to kind of say about the show? Like I think. Well, uh, well, let's 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 do a brief discussion of Mon Mothma because um, yes. I do think those that that's a whole fascinating aspect of the show too. Mon Mothma is a character who's actually been in the Star Wars canon since 1983. She is briefly introduced, though I don't think 
named on screen uh, in Return of the Jedi as this very dignified woman who we gather is the leader of the rebellion. And she's made endless cameos and supporting bits in, in various Star Wars properties since. Um, she makes a brief appearance played by Genevieve O'Reilly in Rogue One, uh, but we've never really gotten her story before. And in Andor, a significant amount of screen time is given to her and we learn more about her than in in all previous Star Wars properties combined. And she's a totally fascinating character in her own right. This is a, um, and, and it, we might as well be meeting her for the first time. Um, she is from a wealthy family on this planet called Chandrala that has a lot of kind of aristocratic traditions. Um, she's in what's basically an arranged marriage that seems like an unhappy marriage. Uh, she has a, a kind of tween daughter who's being very whiny and difficult. Um, and she's a senator because the Senate still exists at this time. I mean, in the original trilogy, there was a functioning Democratic Senate at first uh, of the Old Republic. And then Emperor Palpatine basically declares martial law with the aid of uh, the hated Jar Jar Binks. And um, and but but the Senate is abolished off screen in the original Star Wars movie, episode four. Uh, we you know, and, and Grand Moff Tarkin says the last vestiges of the Old Republic have been swept away. So what we know from the canon is that in the, you know, maybe two decades between the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy, there is a Senate. It's just kind of a, a rubber stamp Senate in in, uh, you know, this this increasingly totalitarian empire. Uh, you know, as existed in the Roman Empire, too. I mean, this is an old concept. Um, and uh, and so is uh, the concept in, in many totalitarian countries, including, you know, modern Russia and so on, of a of a token opposition. Right. You you let a few people give kind of meek voice uh, to to uh, opposition to to the ruling imperial order in order to make them look weak and mealy mouthed. And, and it's a kind of theater. Um, now, what can vary in different regimes is how much the token opposition sees itself uh, as as token versus, uh, you know, how much they're just playing a part versus how real it is. I mean, I and I sort of think in the recent American context of when when Sean Hannity, it used to be Hannity and Combs, right? Sorry, Alan Combs that. died. But Alan Combs, as best as I understand it, was an earnest liberal. Um, he was very dweeby. And Fox put him opposite the the kind of, you know, fratty, bombastic uh, Sean Hannity to do a, a kind of parody of, of uh, you know, this was back when Fox used to, to emphasize how fair and balanced they were. And it was kind of a troll. And, and they would put, you know, Hannity, who carried the network's real feelings against this dweeby guy, Combs. And, you know, there was always kind of a question, is, is, does Combs understand that he's being paid a lot of money to, to play the role of, of the, the, the mealy mouth liberal opposition? Or does he actually think he's doing some good here by pushing back? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, to be honest, I don't know the answer. I think there's some ambiguity about that. Maybe he went back and forth on it himself. But anyway, on, on, on the show, we've got Mon Mothma, whose sort of public face is as the one senator whose job is to be like, we think maybe the empire's, you know, emergency legislation has gone just a bit too far. And can we tone it down? And everyone just like laughs at her, ignores her, or isn't even like in the Senate chamber because they don't even want to dignify this. That's her public role. Her private role is that she is raiding her family trust fund uh, 
to finance terrorism against the empire. So she's actually in a crucial and delicate role in this kind of emerging rebellion, um, but one that she herself only half absorbs. She understands she needs to do something. She understands she needs to do more than she can do publicly, but she's also kind of horrified sometimes by by the the actual uh, means that Luthen and her cousin, who's who's uh, you know a privileged a privileged woman who's who's out in the field risking her life and and committing acts of violence, and who I compared to Bernadine Dorn in in my review, um, you know, Mothma isn't totally comfortable with this. Now we know from the original trilogy she's going to become comfortable with it. She's going to end up you know, ordering and inspiring directly uh, military raids against the empire. But at this stage, she's walking a line that I think will be familiar, though, though I think she's gone a step further than most of us have. Um, but she's walking a line that will be familiar to kind of left liberals of, of your my type, Jeet, of basically trying to keep democracy or what's left of it going and basically trying to play by the rules while also having this ever-growing awareness that the system is fundamentally broken and that laws are going to have to be broken and violence is going to have to be committed to resist it um and that's that's uh i found every every scene with her dealing with that and with like what her personal red lines are to be highly compelling because i think those are the questions a lot of us ask ourselves no, absolutely, absolutely. I, I will say one more thing about the the character, which is that I think the show traces out the sort of um, private costs of political action, and in some ways, the sort of um, uh, as we we talked about before with the great speech that uh, Luthen Riel did uh, with Mon Matha as well. There's a um, it's not spelled out, but one sees that like the sort of double life that she's leading and the fact that, you know, she's about to create a facade uh, in order to carry out the secret activity of financing the rebellion is kind of like alienated herself even more from uh, the arranged marriage with her husband and from the daughter. That, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and from he, the kind he, of like uh, uh, snooty company they keep at parties, you know, that like yeah. elite Georgetown type cocktail parties where where she has to, yeah, she basically has to maintain an appearance of being this kind of, you know, dignified Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright type figure, uh, when really she's she's uh involved in in stuff that, you know, those two and their like would never go near. Um yeah. and it and it's killing her and it's killing her family. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's right. And I, I think it's sort of uh, very uh, well spelled out. I mean, in terms of the, uh, um, uh, you mentioned uh, Bernadette Dern. I, I mean, one other way to think about this is the, um, although it's not as explicit here, but is the IRA Sinn Féin. Like, you know, you have the, the sort of political wing and the armed resistance wing and, you know, yep. what connection there is, what communication uh, I, right. I, mean, I, think yeah. it, I actually just read uh, Say Nothing, the Patrick Radden Keefe book that's all about the IRA. And so that that stuff was very fresh on my mind, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, and, and the and within the sort of universe of the rebellion, there's a kind of spectrum of people from the most like, you know, legal public faces to the sort of intelligence operators like Luthen to the outright terrorist. Uh, and the sort of and then and then you get all sorts of issues of trust and, you know, 
who's using who and who knows what's going on. Um, which, which again, uh, I, I think, um, given Tony Gilroy's background in writing the Bourne trilogy, uh, and in, uh, 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 comes out of this sort of your know, tradition of the thriller and of espionage fiction and of Jean Le Carre. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that the, um, uh, I, I mean, I totally agree with you that this is a, a show of a very high order, um, you know, like not just good Star Wars, but good period and, and, and really, you know, comparable to like some of the best work that's been done in, in, um, uh, television. Um, yeah. so and, I, the, and the confidence that they bring to it is such that the creators do. I mean, you literally do not need to have ever seen any Star Wars property to watch the show from the beginning and be blown away by it. Uh, I mean, most people probably have at least seen a little bit of Star Wars, but you know, you don't need to be a fan. You could you could hate Star Wars. I love Star Wars, although I, you know, like everyone who loves Star Wars, I I I I get mad at all kinds of things that have come out. But but something about this franchise at its core is so compelling that you stick with it through years and years of 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 embarrassing cringe work because there's there's some kernel you want to stick with and then and then you're rewarded with Andor, which is better than you ever knew it could be. So yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, in fact I would actually um, encourage listeners who have never seen Star Wars or never gotten into Star Wars. I, I think it's different enough from Star Wars. Well, one could you know flip that and say that uh, you know there's some stuff like as you mentioned in your review. I think it's a very important point. Um, it's a very anthropocentric universe in the sense of like it's really a story of humans, and it doesn't have that sort of Star Wars feel of like a lot of aliens and a lot of different types of androids and yeah, what they're, they're what, there but they're, they're there but they're kind of background background, background. Yeah. uh but but still i mean I, I think that's also part of um uh, a deliberate yeah i mean I, I think tony gilroy is deliberately you know backgrounding certain things and foregrounding other things um and yeah it's just a very compelling show and one hopes uh you know disney is in a lot of turmoil uh, but, but they, they have a, a season two that they're working on and one hopes uh that uh, that will uh, uh get done and, and maintain the same level of quality yeah my my understanding is it's planned to be two seasons and and the first season was so stellar and the critical reaction has been so great that knock on wood of course uh i I assume they will flawlessly execute the second season. I mean, I sure hope so. Um, but then then they'll probably cut their losses at that point. And the real question is, will they ever let Gilroy or any other, you know, truly great creator have their way with this franchise again? And But even if they don't, um, I hope, uh, you know, I hope other people take inspiration from this. I mean, I'm not a particularly big Marvel fan, but I mean, I think one thing Andor shows is, okay, so so blockbuster franchises are are you know dominant now and we can bemoan that all we want but sometimes someone you know takes the reins for a bit and does i mean i i'm a last jedi defender the uh episode uh eight of of the that disney did there are, i know smart people on both sides of whether the last jedi was good i think it's good although I, I certainly think it's ambitious. I think it's an artistically ambitious movie. And I think Ryan Johnson was trying to do some really interesting things with it and and succeeded more than not within the context of the movie, though obviously the franchise then stomped on everything he did with, with the horrible uh, follow-up that J.J. Abrams did. But, you know, that that was an interesting kind of isolated example of what happens when you give someone with real artistic ambitions control of 
a billion dollar franchise. Andor is like a thoroughly satisfying, fully formed version of, of what happens when when you do that. And I think I hope more of these franchises, if 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 we're going to get them and if they're the, you know, the main cash cow for Hollywood, uh, you know, for for the foreseeable term, I, I hope we I hope we get more risk takers within them. Yeah, no, I I mean, uh, to take your point up with the Marvel cinematic stuff, I, I think the one point of comparison would be with the, the two Black Panther movies that uh, Ryan Coogler did, which I think are the best of the MCU and do bring much more of an, a personal vision uh, and a different feel than the others. Although I would not rank them like no. near Andor, but I, I mean, they're, they're, they're... I haven't seen the second one. I liked Black Panther a lot, but I can't imagine doing a whole episode i mean i don't know maybe I, I wouldn't do it but i can imagine one doing it but i i do think this is uh this is storytelling on another level from that's right that's right no yeah. it is it is yeah no it's just hard to think of any other point of comparison no i i think that's right um okay so that's a good note to end on so, uh, thank you uh david for once again being on and uh yeah encourage people, to, <laughs> encourage people to watch What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hero.co.